This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. We have Corinna with us today, uh, doing a bit of a crossover here. I think most people know you from the Heterodorks podcast you do with uh, Nina Paley. Um, speaking of, this is a, a pronoun uh, safe space. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, so anyway, Corinna's here today. She's going to tell us her story um, about uh, originally transitioning back in the 90s. And then I think you kind of kind of clued into uh, the dangers of gender ideology and kind of became one of the um, one of the early tra- gender critical, as it were, uh, transsexuals. So, uh, yeah, we can talk about all that. Where do you want to start? Well, if nobody has uh, heard of me yet, then maybe if I give a little background, that might give them some context. Great. So my name is Corinna, and I transitioned when I was, I, I started what was uh, back then called the real life test. I started that when I was 18 years old, started hormone replacement therapy at 18 and had what was then called sex reassignment surgery uh, at 19. And then for about 10 years or 15 years or so, I managed to live more or less without having trans stuff be part of my day to day. So we used to call that stealth, although I look at some old photos of me and I think uh, there's probably a a few people who uh, had some suspicions. And then uh, about 10 years ago, I started becoming interested in the schism that's between feminism and the trans community. And I started blogging a little bit in order to try to work out some of these issues. My fundamental principles are very free speech oriented. And so one of the things that was happening at the time is that trans activists were organizing in order to shut down the conferences that women were having to talk about feminism. My thought was that even if I don't agree with what they're saying, that in a world that is pluralistic, which, and by that I mean that we respect each other's rights to to meet and talk with people who are like-minded, then it's not correct for us to try to shut down those types of conferences, but we should support them because we would want reciprocity. We would, if we were having those sorts of conferences, we would not want people to shut us down. We would see that as unjust. So I started writing uh, on that topic and it turns out that that was extremely divisive. And when the dust settled, I realized that I would much rather support feminists on the issue than the trans activists who are trying to shut down speech. And that caused me to be a little bit more open to thinking more uh, about some of the feminist issues. And one day a feminist asked me, I'm sorry, I'm giving like the whole background. One day a feminist asked me like, why do you, why do you have to identify as a trans woman instead of just being what you are, which is a, a man who's had some unusual experiences and a, a unique perspective. And I was like, uh, that's a really 
fantastic question. And it, it, I processed that for, for a, a number of days. And I was like, yeah, I guess if I recognize that I'm different from other men and that that's okay, that doesn't mean that I have to try to be like other men. And I can still retain the parts of myself that are uh, me without having to be in denial about what I am. So I started to write about that a little bit more, which everybody loved and understood and accepted instantly. And that was the end of the story. There was never any more conflict about it. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I got put on a list. Majestic behind you in the sun. He is a king. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry, go on. Yeah, it's really pathetic that my cat brings more male energy to my house than I do. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it turns out that that is not a very well accepted viewpoint in the trans community. And I found myself increasingly marginalized by people. Uh, they wouldn't even talk to me. And that's it's still like that today for the most part in the trans community. Um, there, there are a few exceptions, which uh, I do appreciate people being able to, to break the wall of silence, even if it's uh, just in private conversations. But for the most part, I am a persona non grata within the trans community. And I've lost many, many nights of sleep. No, I haven't. Um, those those people really need to, to uh, evolve a little bit. What year was it when you started speaking out about that and kind of embracing, you know, being male and, and speaking about your issues with the, with the trans movement? What year was that? Properly 2013. Okay. Okay. Yes, you were definitely alone then. Yes. There, so I will shout out one of the people who came before me and, and wrote a little bit on the issue on Tumblr. And that was somebody who is called Snowflake Especial. But uh, I was probably the first person on the trans side on Twitter who, who spoke about it. And then there were more people who came along afterwards. I think I remember you saying that um, that Mishfest was one of the pivotal moments for you. And, and I don't remember exactly how that story went. I think someone yeah. invited you to go or? So I was invited to go back when I was in my 20s. And I checked it out and I saw that it was woman only space. And I thought, uh, I'm there are probably technicalities that uh, where I should come up with an excuse and not attend. And it was thinking about Mishfest again in 2012 that sort of uh, spurred my interest in trying to resolve the, the differences between feminism and the, the trans community. That was, that was really me reminiscing one day going, well, why is it, why is it that there's, because I knew, I knew about Camp Trans. Uh, so Michigan's, Michigan Women's Music Festival was a woman-only multi-day event that was on private land in Michigan where women uh, had uh, talks together, they had music acts that would come in, they would do different sorts of women's things. And by that, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put a big box in, in, in like put everything in 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 a in a big box because that, that means a lot of stuff just uh things that, that men were not involved in and if for whatever reason men would need to come to the land while the festival was going then they would like create like 
barriers or space around so that the the women and the men wouldn't mix while the men were doing whatever they needed to like if they needed to service things on land and the the trans people the trans women were all upset about this and so they started camping out outside of the festival and they would try to sneak in and that created a lot of bad blood and uh, i was just one day in 2012 i was thinking about how all that was had been the pattern and I wanted to learn more about what the feminist point of view was so that I could try to resolve it with what was going on with trans women. Because at the time, if, if I went back 10 years from today, this is 2022, if I went back 10 years from today, I would say, oh, women and trans women have so much in common. We have to, ha we face similar um, oppression from the patriarchy and we get treated in similar ways in society and it's it's uphill for both of us and we have so much in common i just don't understand why there's animosity between us and that only took about a year for me to be like oh shit uh now i know why there's animosity and it's because the trans people are are extremely aggressive about inserting themselves into uh women's doing and, and women's uh spaces i only recently learned this that uh, a lesbian couple and their son um actually died they were murdered um in relation to that conflict i think yes. i think aaron it was you that that told me about that and i looked it up and i hadn't i hadn't realized that how how bad it got by a friend of theirs so it's it's not just that uh so the the murderer's name is dana rivers and by the way i've met dana rivers uh it wasn't only that dana rivers was angry and killed them he, he knew them and had a ongoing relationship with them. And, and there was just some trigger that he killed them at some point. Oh, okay. So it wasn't actually directly to do with the, the conflict. I thought it was a case of they're opposing his being at Mitch Fest and that was his retaliation. That wasn't the case. It was, they were, oh, oh, okay. That's, that's not my understanding. So I'm not an expert on the case. So I, I if I'm, relaying details that are not correct, then that's on me. But my last understanding of it is that they, uh, they knew him. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think the article that I were, that I read didn't, I don't think it mentioned that they had known each other, but I, I think they had framed it as it was, it was a conflict somehow over, um, Mishfest. Well, they, they, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if they had a, an argument about it that wouldn't be a shock. So what next? What next? That is a uh, secret plans. No, there's, <laughs> it is finally time to, in America, for there to be some attention paid by politicians to what is happening in the gender clinics to adolescents. And so what's next is to help facilitate conversations between the people who understand what the current state of the medicine is and the people who are able to uh, provide some sort of regulatory oversight. So that is what is next. There was just an article um, that I've been posting on social media, it just came out today um, of, you know, reporting on Dr. Marcy Bowers um, stating at, I think it was like a conference or a, or a talk, stating that every single child that she has worked with as a surgeon who was who had been on pre, on puberty blockers has zero sexual function and zero yeah. zero ability to have an organ orgasm yep they're 
being excluded from one of the most important human experiences. How, so she, every single one? She said 100% of the clients that she's aware of through her practice who had been started on puberty, puberty blockers, you know, from the, the Tanner stage two. Tanner stage two is has zero sexual function. Jesus. Ugh. So they're like perfect little dolls. They never have to be sullied. How about that? It's it's insane that this continues. Yeah, I don't know how they can continue to say that it's a perfectly harmless, reversible. Um, you know, intervention when we're hearing this evidence, like we're hearing about children being permanently harmed and damaged. You know, bone bone health, like there's a couple of, there's a number of reports from, um, which clinic is it? The Swedish clinic that, Karolinska. or Den, or Den, yes, yeah, um, that said, that has now announced that they're aware of several children who were medically harmed as a result of puberty blockers, mostly with bone density, you know, teenagers getting osteoporosis which that's not something that you can just drink more milk to get rid of. That's something that is a very deep damage, very serious. You know, and it is different because, you know, the activists argue, well, they've been giving this to, to kids um, with early onset puberty, but that's very different because puberty right. is a time when certain physiological processes happen like bone density. You know, so the bone density that you have as an adult was built up during adolescence. And, and so if you interrupt certain um, pathways at their, gen at their developmentally appropriate time, it's not like you can just um, reverse that, that uh, pause button and, and that all just miraculously happens. Like you've missed now that window of a critical time of bone density happening. Yes. And I think sometimes about how I had HRT started when I was 18 and that although I believed that I was an adult at the time because legally that was the case, it took a number of years before I understood that body, your body continues to mature through adolescence into your 20s. So I wonder what I may have done to myself by starting transition so early. Yeah, we do. We do tend to think of, of uh, puberty and adolescence as sort of ending around, you know, 17, 18 mark and legally at 18, you're an adult, but that's really not the case. I mean, our bodies and our minds continue to mature, you know, into our 20s. And, and, you know, even without the what we're, what we, you know, childhood to transition, so many people now are transitioning in their late teens and early 20s, you know, before that actual, you know, maturation occurs. And that's on the people who are, you know, legally capable of consenting to that, that kind of healthcare. And I don't think we talk about that enough either. It's like not just not just the, um, yeah, the, the rarer trans kids, as it were, but those, you know, adult teenagers who are able to take this decision into their own hands when they're not really able to. Well, let's be real for a second. What do you think should be the minimum age before somebody should be allowed to medically transition? Throw me in the fire here. <laughs> I'll throw us all in the fire because I think we should all answer it. Well, I've heard the, I've heard the age 25 being thrown around because of the um, emotional 
brain development, the cognitive development, that it seems to mature around age 25. But I would add the caveat that that really depends on actual informed consent, which means having all of the evidence presented to people in an honest way, including outcomes and complication rates. And there's so much that is um, hiding behind a veil that unless we have access to that honest information about what all of this is about and and what and the implications of that in our in in terms of our you know lifetime it's not conformed it's not informed consent at any age hmm it's why is it not conformed informed consent at any age because you have to have all of the information for it to be informed consent otherwise you're you you don't you're missing the informed part to me, that suggests that there are no actions that we can take without being considered informed if we don't have all the data. And we live in a world with a lot of uncertainty. And if the only way that we could make decisions for ourselves is if we had all of the data that was possible and that there was someone else to hold, keep us from making those decisions until they were satisfied that we had all of that data. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do anything. It's true. I mean, there's still a lot that we don't yet know about transition, but the, but the active hiding of some of that information, I think, is what I'm most concerned about. I mean, we could still be informed of the available data, uh, knowing that there's still a lot that we don't yet know. What's your answer to your question, Colonel? My answer. Oh, do you want me to go second or last? <laughs> I see what you're doing. I'll go yeah. second. I'll go second. I'm weaseling. Um, no, it's it's fair. Fair. You you sounded like you're on the precipice of answering them. So I because I, I do I do lean towards 25 as well, just because what we know of what we know of cognitive development, and uh, 25 is basically you know the 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 age at which you know where you know our, our brains have fully. Uh, fully formed into adulthood. Obviously, there's still many, there's so much aging, there's so much maturing that happens well after that. And there are plenty of people, especially like with the fertility question, let's say, so many people, so many, especially young women, like in the, you know, the 25, 26, there's a no, no, there's no way I want children that, you know, mm. like just off. And then, and then they get into the 30s and that biological impulse is like procreate, procreate. And they, and that suddenly changes, you know, like it, so. I don't know how to answer that question just because I don't know. Um, so you could say 18 because they're legally an adult. That's when you can legally consent to other, you know, medical interventions for yourself. Um, with transition, though, it's just such a, it's too gray. Mm. I've successfully weaseled. No, that sounds like a good answer. So what's the next question then? The thing is, though, like, <laughs> There are, there are vulnerable adults, and that's the part that maybe we, we, we don't always talk about is just because yeah. someone reaches a certain age doesn't mean that they're not still vulnerable in some way and don't have the capability of consenting in some way. Well, and with the overlap of um, autism spectrum disorders and gender dysphoria or seeking transition, I mean, people on the spectrum tend to mature later than everybody else, right? And so if you know, so, so a 25-year-old with autism is not a 25-year-old, you know, neurotypical individual mm. when it comes to, you know, the, the ability to think of the, you know, of the, the, the consequences of your actions. Well, it sounds to me like 
that age is only one part of the formula then. Mm -hmm. Competency must be another part of it. So I'll answer and I'll try not to weasel, but I will say that there is a line that we have to draw somewhere where we permit people to become accountable for their own actions. And depending on what that action is, most of those actions are age 18. You can get a tattoo. You can, I don't know what else can you do at 18, buy pornography, but that doesn't seem like a very- Join the military. Um, yeah, join the military. And at 21, there are other responsibilities that you can assume, like being able to purchase alcohol. And I think cigarettes now are age 21 in some places. Yeah, and but this all that's all specific to the US, not all specific to the US, but like, you know, in, right. in most European countries, you can drink at 18. Um, yes. Yeah. So depending on where you are, 18, 21, those are ages that, that we say, regardless of how competent you seem to be at an individual level, we are going to say at a, at a social level, we're going to permit you to become responsible for your actions at this point. So I would say that I would set the age at 18. However, that the practice of informed consent only before having access to hormones or especially surgery is not something that we should agree with. There are two parts of this, in my opinion. The first is what constitutes informed consent is laughable in a lot of cases. I don't know if you saw any of the documents from the Helen Weberly trial. Uh, uh, it's not a trial, it's a tribunal hmm. in the UK. A very short background. Helen Weberly is a doctor, uh, along with her husband, who essentially oh, gender provide, GP gender GP pro provide hormones basically on to, to people who ask with with very little qualification through the mail through remote so you have a zoom session with the doctor who talks to you for a little bit and does a, an assessment in a virtual assessment and makes a decision to whether or not uh, she is comfortable providing uh, hormone uh, prescriptions based on just that. So she was accused of not performing her duties according to the standards of care for WPATH, and that she also failed to provide the standards of care for the 2009 guidelines for the endocrine society. And the tribunal said, well, uh, we think these are outdated. We think that the University of California, San Francisco, has the, the more modern standards of care, which is informed consent. And that if the patient says that they understand the side effects of the medication, then that is the only thing that is standing between them and a successful prescription. And in practice, what this turns out to be, so, so if you follow what WPATH, SOC7 says about informed consent, an aspect of informed consent, according to WPATH, is that the physician, the doctor, the clinician, needs to be convinced that the patient has a complete understanding of the risks and drawbacks of the procedure that they're considering. Okay, so that, that sets on the physician, 
hey, you need to get to know this patient well enough to, to talk to them about what the side effects are going to be and to get feedback from them that they know what it is. Like you need to know your patient. What informed consent turns out to be in practice is here's a piece of paper that has the, the, the side effects and the complications that can happen from what you're asking for. Please sign at the bottom. Okay, it's signed. That's informed consent. I gave you a piece of paper that has the symptom or the complications and side effects. You said that you read it. Hell if I know if you did or not, but you signed and said that you did. Therefore, now I'm going to give you testosterone or estrogen or a double mastectomy or orchiectomy. And it's completely according to the University of California, San Francisco standards of care because you signed a piece of paper. So when we have a regime that says that anybody, any teenager who can sign a piece of paper can also have uh, permanent surgical effects, there is essentially no adult in the room. There's no oversight and there's no, there's nobody who cares about that teenager or that young person who is there advocating for that person to receive the best care. What you have is a relationship between a somebody whose mind is still maturing into adulthood. They're not really an adult in the way that somebody who's 30 or 40 is, who is who wants something desperately because their friends have it, they are missing out on it, and they truly, genuine believe, genuinely believe that what is keeping them from achieving themselves or achieving their authentic self is that medicine or that surgery. So that's, that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is somebody who gets paid to write a prescription. And that the thing that they are worried about, that clinician, what they're worried about is the insurance provider being able to pay that claim. That's what they care about. The person who's coming in, the teenager who's seeking the, the surgery or seeking the hormones, that's all secondary because there's going to be another one after that kid. The really important thing is to maintain the relationship with the insurance provider. And the only thing that the insurance provider is looking for is a piece of paper that says informed consent at the top and is signed by the patient on the bottom. So there is a, something huge missing in this relationship, which is any individual, and this is normally parents, but between parents being uh, pushed out by the kids, because that's part of the gender ideology is, is get rid of the family that doesn't love you and come to your glitter family. That's one side. Or the parents who have been, uh, I was going to say brainwashed, maybe there's a nicer way of saying it, convinced. Let's say parents who've been convinced that this is the only thing that can save their kids. Uh, in either case, you don't have somebody who is really focused on the healthcare outcomes, uh, realistic healthcare outcomes of the teenager. So I would say, going back, what age? I would say 18 if there is somebody who is able to properly assess the competency of the individual who is seeking the treatment. Makes sense. 
when you said the parents have been convinced so so like so one thing that i keep going back to is is it's going to be the parents that kind of put an end to this because you know in the past it was always you know just just adult people outside of their parents care seeking transition um but now there's a lot of young people obviously being transitioned and their parents are deeply invested in the health and well-being of their children obviously and so they're going to be the ones who are who are you know nickel and diming the the transition process um and and, and you know putting brakes on and whatnot and you're saying that 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 it's not enough essentially for somebody who is well let, let's let's think about the scenario are you talking about somebody who's 18 or under 18 Eight, over eight, eight somebody who's an adult still like their parent you know they're, they're still technically you know they're, they're technically an adult yes but they're, they're over 18 they're technically an adult but their par parent is still like heavily invested obviously mm -hmm. in their life at that point well that's where we run into some of these really sad scenarios right now which is that parents know that they have children who are of the age of majority mm -hmm. and who are seeking to have these sorts of treatments done and that these parents know their kids are not competent yet. And there's no real mechanism for them to be part of the, uh, be part of their children's care. Even, even though their children might still be on their insurance, right? The parents really don't have any role right now in determining, determining whether that child should have access to care. And I should say adult child should have the, access to care. The parents are the parents are saying that they don't really have any mechanism to be involved, even if their kids are minors. Like, you know, if parents are oh. saying, if parents are saying things like, you know, I don't think this is, I think this is going too fast. Um, my kid has just experienced trauma and I, I'm concerned that's a factor. My kid has ADHD. I'm concerned that's a factor. My kid that's never shown any signs of gender nonconformity growing up and all of a sudden announced a trans identity. These parents are being, are being dismissed and aren't allowed to be keepers of the safety of their children. They're being dismissed by whom though? That's a part of the question. Well, that's tricky because they're being dismissed by oftentimes the, the clinicians, but the clinicians are being influenced by the activists. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg question, right? Who is actually driving and forcing this? Yes. And sometimes it's the state. And you were saying, Corinna, that, um, you know, obviously all that the, the physician cares about is that, that insurance check. You were obviously um, well into this when, when it changed from being a, um, you know, well, I, I transitioned in 2011 and uh, I paid out of pocket for my prescriptions for a few years. Um, but but um, I, do you think that's where the shift happened? It's like once um, once insurance companies were required to cover transition treatment, is that do you think when at least in the U.S. and Aaron, I want to hear your perspective, obviously, on the because you guys have have um, nationalized health care, so it's going to look differently. Um, but but Corinne, do you recall, like, do you think the, the massive uptick in all this transitioning, one hand of it, obviously, is the social contagion, the, the, the well, again, chicken and egg. Um, but I'm wondering, like, is that when, when the, the, the skyrocket of transitioning happened from your perspective is once, once there was, you know, insurance money to be made from? This is a fantastic question, and I don't have any answers on that. Uh, 
one of those correlations is not causation topics, because we know that there has been a lot of lobbying on behalf of these trans organizations on insurance companies to supply coverage for transition related care. But whether whether the availability of money for that care is what caused people to become more interested in seeking it, I don't know. What's interesting is that that explosion in numbers, like we are, we're, most of us have seen that graph where it's like, you know, fairly stable numbers. And then around 2015 is when we start, started to see this really rapid increase. And that seems to be the case everywhere, like it, regardless of, of whether you had a socialized healthcare system or not, or whether there was insurance cover, coverage or not. So from state to state or province to province or country to country, those numbers seem to all be fairly consistent in terms of how that, that curve happens. So it, it doesn't seem to be correlated with what system or what country you're living in. It's Western though. Yeah. It's, this isn't happening at the same rate in you know uh some other country that's not a western country i was going to pick on a country there for a second and i thought whichever one i pick on it's going to make somebody mad but this is this is mostly western phenomenon yeah it is but but do you i think it was around was it 2014 that um that transition healthcare because i'm wondering so, so much of this you know starts here in the us and radiates elsewhere so i am wondering if if the the trend um the you know that that boom that happened elsewhere was related to because because obviously you know so much of this is tumblr of course but like you um uh, so everybody's all connected obviously online absorbing the same information picking up the same social trends and uh, anyway, I'm kind of wondering, though, if it was related to the U.S. covering, you know, what used to be something that you had to pay for out of these surgeries and everything had to be paid for out of pocket. Suddenly insurance are providing them. Suddenly more and more teenagers and or adults, but, you know, like young people are having these surgeries in the U.S. because they're being paid for, whereas before you had to pay out of pocket. And and again, it's just like part of the that, you know, the exposure of it all um, could be could be universal to. Happen, you know, basically extend two countries that already covered it, um, but again, with the with the, the, I'm not articulating this very well, but I think I, I think you know what I'm what I I'm do. Saying that, here. that sounds it, like you could get a research grant to answer that. Ah, <laughs> I'll try. Aaron, what was it like over there? Like, because you guys, how long how long has transition been covered? Uh, it's with, different with your. It's different. It's different from province to province. Um, so the the federal government gives the provinces money for healthcare, but it's up to the provinces how they spend that and how, and the design of their healthcare services. So I mean, even between British Columbia and Alberta, which is one province over, um, Alberta, you have to see a psychiatrist to do the hormone readiness assessment. Um, whereas in BC, they're trying to get you know as many just. Um, primary care physician, you know, so uh, family doctors and nurse practitioners to do that assessment um, to to decrease the barriers as much as possible. Um, so it's really different, but we've had and and coverage for which procedures are covered is different from province to province as well. But we've had cover full coverage for um, surgeries um, in BC for a long time now, like almost a decade, I think. Oh, but that wasn't the case when you transitioned then. When I transitioned, we didn't have coverage for chest surgery yet. Um, and 
and genital surgeries weren't really covered either. Yeah, genital surgeries weren't covered either, but it's been in the last like 10 years that everything started to be covered and we have and we have but we didn't have a we don't we until recently we didn't have a surgeon in bc that could do any of the genital surgeries we had a number that were doing the double mastectomies uh, these are life-saving procedures <laughs> I, I like that there's these little in jokes that we can tell each other <laughs> that, that if you're that if you don't know <laughs> somebody listening is going to be like Wow, why did Corinna say those are life saving? No, then we, then we start laughing. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, like, so they're saying, you know, this, this, with this increase, that's just because there's less stigma. So everyone who's truly trans is now, now feels that liberty to transition. So you're telling me that with a 4,000% increase, are you saying that that 4,000%, those people that make up that 4,000%, were they all dying before? Like, so, I mean, it, it just doesn't, the narrative just doesn't add up when nope. you try, when you try to piece all these, all the pieces, to, all the information together. Not a single bit of it does. And this is a rabbit hole, so I'm reluctant to even say it, but you have to understand sexual orientation, how, how that plays a role in who's transitioning. We'll go down the rabbit hole. Let's let's go down the rabbit hole because we've been talking yeah. about that quite a bit. All right. So let's let's first agree that the populations between males who want to transition and females who want to transition, that there are different there's differences between them. So whether you are uh, somebody who um, believes the the Blanchard model for for males who are trying to transition where the majority of them are heterosexual, autogynophilic, and the small minority of them are homosexual, transsexual, uh, which that's not a model that applies very well to females who are trying to transition. And then uh, on the female side, you have um, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And uh, I guess there are some uh, women who are transitioning to men who uh, identify as having autoandrophilia. And then uh, the rather sizable number of uh, females who are attracted to females who are transitioning. So that's, uh, they're, they're, they look differently on the male side versus the female side. So that's one place to start. And that's changed on the female side, because I mean, Blanchard told us that the reason why they never did a typology on the female to male transition was that for decades, they only saw one kind of person showing up to clinics, and that was butch lesbians. So they didn't really feel a need to investigate that further and, and try to make sense of the, the differences they were seeing in the population, because it was just one population until recently. Until the ROGD population emerged, right? Which is one other reason why it doesn't make sense that lack of stigma is what's you know opening all of this up to to transition is that doesn't explain why we would see a completely new cohort of people. And the ratio the ratio of males to females upending, um, you know, doesn't explain that. What do you think the ratio is right now? You know, I I think it's it's definitely it's shifting all the time, right? It seems that uh, it seems like the rapid onset in boys is um, kind of on, on the uptick. 
Um, I don't know what the ratio is. <laughs> I think in the graph I saw in 2019, the ratio was about 75% females, natal females. I think that's, I think the males are starting to catch up a little bit. So it might be closer to, or do you think it's still 75% females? I think it's more than 75% females personally. Really? Okay. So, so there's one population that we haven't talked about yet, which is the, uh, and, and, and I guess this is, makes it pretty interesting in a way. Uh, who is trans, right? Are the, are the non-binary people trans? Like, what is a trans? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go across the world and I'm going to interview people from all sorts of cultures and ask them, what is a trans? <laughs> like, what is a Walsh guy who's going around? What is a woman? That's right. <laughs> I'm going to do a follow-up. What is a trans? Uh, <laughs> get a microphone and just go out on the street and say, hey, what's a trans? <laughs> I, I bet I'll get some interesting answers. But are the, the, the non-binaries trans, right? I do think it's funny how we're in, in our circles of like, where we, we're, we're kind of on the crossover between the, the, the trans space and the, and the uh, gender critical space. Obviously we, you know, ideologically are much more aligned with the, the latter. Um, but a lot of them are, a lot of the ones who are completely opposed to all, all trans people are basically like, oh, oh, you only, you know, basically there's no such thing as true transsexuals. You think they're the true transsexuals. And it's like, no, no, we, I mean, obviously we use it as a joke, but like, no, we don't, we don't think that there, that there's such a thing as, as a true Wait, transsexual. That's a joke. <laughs> so, so when I, when I say that I am the only true transsexual, that's not a joke. I, I'm the only one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, let me let me actually out of, out of, out of, let let me be a good guest. I am the only <laughs> true male to female transsexual. I yeah, all 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 y'all's got. You can't claim our experience. Yeah, yeah, I can't claim your experience. That's that's all on y'all. But uh, yeah, I'm the only true yeah male to. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, you know that there's like a movement, a true transsexual movement. Yeah, did you know that? There, there always has been. There, there used to be uh, somebody, a group who called themselves as having uh, Harry Benjamin syndrome. Interesting. Huh. Harry Benjamin was one of the progenitors of the transmedicalization. And what is called WPATH now used to be the Harry Benjamin um, Society or Standards of Care or something like that. And there were a group of true transsexuals who called themselves as, as having women with Harry Benjamin syndrome. Interesting. I mean, you still, we still have that. It's obviously the Harry Benjamin standards, but you know, the, what are called the trans medicalists or the true scum, which I have, you know, very much used to be, I used to believe that, you know, there were the fakers and the people who really were trans. And I was, of course, with one of the really trans people. Um, so, I mean, that still exists, and you see it in full force. Um, we can't even get people to admit that gender dysphoria is necessary to be trans. Is it? I don't think so. No. I don't think people should be having uh, surgery unless they really do have some sort of... Uh, anxiety or, or, or something really, really horrible feelings about their body that shouldn't, surgery shouldn't even be on the table. And I guess that raises the question of whether surgery should be on the table for anybody, but 
particularly if you don't have any body dysmorphia, you should not be having uh, parts of your body changed around just to meet the fashion, right? Uh, if you want, if you want fashion, go to H and M. Don't don't go to the gender doctor. Why do we think that is happening? Fashion. <laughs> fashion. Well, I mean, it's to the left. I know that there's always been debates about, you know, what is 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 the true transsexual? Is that you know the homosexual subtype or the AGP subtype? But I mean, setting that aside for a second, at least, um, even within the the homosexual cohort, I think there were different reasons that people were driven to transition. Uh, you know, I think for some it was. Let's say, well, let's say, you know, a butch lesbian who is experiencing a lot of homophobia, who doesn't have the necessarily the experience of gender dysphoria, but just feel like because of homophobia and how they naturally kind of present to the world, they just feel like my life would be easier if I if I took hormones and I passed as the opposite sex and now I'm free of discrimination. So Xander, that's one uh, reason. Yeah, so that, he, yeah, he's, he's yeah, explained he's, that exactly. He's, yeah. he's talked yeah. about that, and he's not alone in that. There are people that do that, and 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 then there are people who are also usually gen, gender nonconforming homosexuals who want to transition because of the gender dysphoria. But probably also, for, pro, there's probably some overlap between those two groups. I'm sure that the people who had actual gender dysphoria, like like I did, I, um, homophobia was still a factor. The, the society's response to gender nonconforming people was a factor. I've heard a lot of, or not a lot, but I've been hearing it a bit, is the, um, the homosexual, transsexual, uh, male, male to female transitioners, all, a lot of them are saying that they didn't have gender dysphoria, as in they didn't have any problem with their physical body. They didn't feel any discontentment with their physical body. It was it was all basically about uh, about partnerships and um, just how basically I can't succeed you know socially and relationally as a highly effeminate man so it's going to be more beneficial to me to live as if I were a woman um, and it's not so much about you know oh my body is alien um, so it, it's always been you know these different yeah different motivators. I've heard the white picket fence thing thrown around a lot that, that yeah. they wanted the white picket fence, sort of the, oh. the normal sort of heteronormal heter, heteronormative life that they didn't feel that they could achieve as a highly effeminate gay man. Hmm. So are non-binary trans, is that, is that a question? Did we answer yeah. that for you? <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't go back to that, did we? <laughs> I'm trying to get a non-binary guest on heterodorks because I really want some, somebody who's not really defensive about it either, because I really want to figure out what are the parameters of somebody who's non-binary? Because if the only parameter is that, that it's somebody who identifies as non-binary, then you know, even Christianity has tighter membership requirements than that. Do you think it's possible to be gender critical and non-binary? No, no, not at all. But, <laughs> but no, it's th those are that's a th that's an antithesis of yeah. gender critical. But Katie Herzog asked um, if you can be uh, conservative and non-binary, and they put it to the guests of you know the, the podcast blocked and reported. It's like, do we have any listeners who are both conservative and non-binary? And somebody reached out to them. Uh, 
Katie interviewed him and it basically turned out that, yeah, he's basically just uncomfortable with male and female social roles and therefore claims to be non-binary. And that's like what it all drills down to. Right. But like, he was otherwise just a gay guy. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Geez, why didn't feminists think of that years ago when they wanted to break down gender? <laughs> Haven't I heard over and over and over that feminism is for women? So, you know, guys have to come up with something now. So that's, uh, I guess, non-binary is for guys. Uh, okay. non, non-binary is feminism for men. <laughs> no, transitioning is feminism for men. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to make people happy. <laughs> uh, tell us about your Washington Post article that was published recently. Okay, so I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. This is something that's a little unusual because the topic of it was, would I wish I had known about transition when I was 19? And the origin of this letter, of my op-ed, was I was in correspondence with a woman whose son was 19 years old and transitioning. And she was asking for some advice and I thought, well, I don't know this, this boy, man, because he's over 18, and as we all know that that's the age of majority. And I thought, if I was going to send a letter back to myself when I was that age, what would I want to tell myself? And I wrote a letter to myself and sent that to her as my email response. And then a few weeks later, a few weeks after that, I contacted Pamela Paresky and said, hey, I wrote this letter to a mother whose child is going through this. And after reading it, I thought maybe it would be of general interest. Uh, can you give me some advice on what I should do with it? And she helped me edit it. And the version that she helped me edit is uh, on appearance on her Substack right now. If you want to check out the letter as it appeared in the edited form, that is on Pamela Paresky's Substack, which is called Habits of a Free Mind. And I'll send you the link so that you can link it if you'd like. But that is the, the mature form of the letter. So then Pamela helped me find some outlets that might be interested in it. And an editor from Washington Post was interested in it. And he said, we do not print that form of like the that that framing that you used, which is the letter to yourself, we, we, we won't print an op-ed like that. Can you completely rewrite it <laughs> into a different form? I said, yes, I can do that. And uh, I produced way too many words that would fit on the page. It was supposed to be 800 words and I submitted 1300 and he said, that's too many. And I chopped it down to a thousand and I said, would you pretty please help me get it down? I didn't say pretty please. I said, would you please help me get it down to the, the word count that you're looking for. So there was some context that was removed from there that when it eventually made it into the Washington Post, there were some things that were um, missing some context that I think would, would have helped some of the my more critical, um, some of the more, more critical feedback I received would probably have been addressed by a little bit more context. So the, the letter that is on Habits of a Free Mind should provide some more of that context. And that criticism you got, what, where was that coming from? Well, so there was a line that said that I transitioned because I was, I wanted to have relationships with men. 
And the fact is that that's, uh, and that is like one piece of the puzzle for me, but it's not the whole piece. Uh, the piece that I wasn't able to get in there very well is how alienated I felt from masculinity because of all the abuse I had received growing up. So between the fact that I was developing crushes on some of my classmates, male classmates, and the fact that I didn't feel like I could be included in anything that was happening with, with boys at all. Um, I really wanted to transition because it would make me feel like I was a normal person. And that goes a little bit back to what you were saying, Aaron, about if you're not a gender conforming person, then transition seems like an appealing way of becoming normal in society uh, because otherwise it's extremely hostile. So yeah, the Washington Post left that, that context out, but okay. um, that made a number of uh, individuals who are very um, aligned with their identity of being homosexual, transsexuals mad because they know that I have uh, dated a woman in the past. And as you were alluding to earlier that some homosexual transsexuals uh, say that they have never had gender dysphoria. So they um, read that and they thought that I was appropriating um, their identity, which, okay. you know, uh, I'm, I'm not part of the identity defender squad. So I, I get people who get mad about that, but um, they got mad at me about it. And um, I'm also a computer programmer, and as you can see by my uh, garbage man outfit that I'm wearing today, with the uh, with the cap and the the sideburns and and the, the cigar <laughs> that I I smoke between the the times that I speak, um, that I'm 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 sort of a brick, and so uh, they want me to admit that I'm an autogynophile, and. Uh, I think uh, I've, I've done a lot of soul searching over the last month. And I think at the end of the day, is, I'm just a really shitty uh, gay, gay transsexual is, is, I think, probably the right uh, place to land on. It's so, I can't believe you got, <laughs> of all the, all the quadrants, I was expecting you to get uh, criticism for that piece. I didn't expect the, the strict Blanchardians to be, to be where it came from. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> Well, they, it wasn't just that piece. It was that uh, Heterodorks had on as a guest, um, J. Michael Bailey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just started um, listening to that. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest. That's a good episode. So they were, they were triggered. And if they listen to this, I hope they are also triggered again. <laughs> oh, man. A, a, a new side. Interesting. <laughs> See, this, is, this is liberating oh, for you, uh, Corinna, because, you know, it, anything you don't want to say on, on your podcast, because it, it might, you know, piss people off too much, you can, you can, you can, come, on, you can come on to ours and say it. Oh, yes. I, I am the soul of restraint on my own podcast. <laughs> a good description. <laughs> but with you, so like, you know, teenage Corinna, 
um, feeling like you didn't fit in masculinity and you were attracted to other boys. You didn't know, like, you know, didn't know where to put yourself. And you came across the concept of transition that was appealing. And I'm wondering now with, um, with all these young men now uh, detransitioning and explaining that much, you know, they, they often feel, felt a lot like, like you did, um, but then you add the element of, of um, online feminism. Because I mean, a lot of most most kids or young adults who are now either trans or detransing, basically grew up on Tumblr, and which is so much social justice. Um, well, it's all it is is social justice, and it's very much men, bad, evil, oppressor, and so many of these boys feeling like you did as a teenager are like, not only do I not feel like I belong with men, I'm attracted to them. Or, or whatever it might be, like you just don't know how to be a man. And then you're also learning that men are evil and oppressors and rapists yes. and just dangerous. And you don't want to be, not only do you not feel comfortable with growing up to be a man, you now feel like you have the, you know, what, what is really internalized misandry and so a further incentive. And, and I joked obviously earlier that, that transitioning is, is feminism for men, but that does seem to be what, like the perspective that a lot of these young men now coming out with their detransition stories were like, I, you know, feminism told me that it was evil to be male. Um, so yeah, <laughs> the feminists are going to, going to hate this, but it almost seems like, uh, no, I'm, I'm never mind. I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I'll let you go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we're going to hear a lot more from that cohort on this issue. And I'm looking forward to them taking the time to play with their thoughts a little bit or air them out. Or, you know, when you have this really big, complicated puzzle in front of you that has a lot of pieces and it has a lot of trauma in it, it takes time to unpack it and look at all these little different parts and understand how they've ended up fitting together. So I think we're at the very beginning of that stage and it's going to be traumatic because as I've seen some of these young detransitioners, these young men are saying, uh, I needed to have a more realistic view of what masculinity would be for me. And I wasn't able to develop it because I internalized this other ideology and although there are some very positive things in feminism, it is obviously not universally beneficial to everybody because we, we can hear these stories from young men who felt like, uh, as you said, they had a lot of internalized uh, misandry. They, they hated the idea that they were men. And to what extent that is attributable to feminism, I think is debatable and it's going to be the cause of many debates from this point into the future. And I actually want to, want to circle back on what I had said because I don't think it's feminism. I think it's more like this toxic bastardization of feminism that kind of takes over online spaces. Like I don't, I, I you know, I obviously am a believer in feminism and, um, but I, um, it's, it's more like the, the, that, yeah, that really toxic view of masculinity that uh, that I don't think feminism itself, you know, is is at fault for, but more like how how that's kind of um, what what it becomes in in online yeah. spaces. Let's say. Well, I, I think women like the the 
FDMs are getting caught in that a little bit too, in the sense that, um, like I'm not saying this was the case with, with Helena, but the, the phenomenon that she describes of, of heterosexual girls because of the social justice framework and, and the narrative that they don't wanna be, it's boring to be heterosexual white girls or het, boring to be heterosexual white boys. And, and so opting into trans in order to have more social currency, but then you, you hear about um, young FDM saying, but then I started to actually look like a man. And now I'm, now I'm a white man. They, so they, so they, it was appealing to them bec because trans has social currency, not really thinking it all through, thinking, well, the hormones are going to do their thing to your body and the world is going to read you as a man. And, and now, now you've lost your social currency because white men have, you know, on the, on the pecking order, right, right men have all the privilege. So it, it's, it's so tricky. And I mean, I experienced some of that um, because I was a lesbian and, and a feminist too for many years. When I transitioned and, and started to appear male, I really had to confront my own bias about what it means to be a man in the world. And I developed a lot more empathy towards men as a result. I'm sorry for laughing. I, I just, that's, that's, uh, that's very serious, but I, I almost asked, what's it like being a man in the world? <laughs> because I, I transitioned uh, at, at 18. And so I haven't had a, a good slice of it. So like, what's your experience with it? Is it like a, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm the guest though, so I'm going to do guest privilege. <laughs> um, it seems horrible. And there's something obviously that is stuck in my brain from the time that I transitioned that is like a arrested development that I just think of the idea of um, going into society and people like having, having to do masculinity sounds horrible. And, and I, I can't get, I can't get that part out of my brain. So like, what is, what is it for you? What, what, what is it like? Well, it's a hard it's question. Horrible, it's, it? it's a hard question to fully articulate, but I mean, I, I can point to a couple of examples. I mean, there's nuances in social learning. And as much as I had gender dysphoria and had sort of this self image as male, I mean, I wasn't socialized male. The world didn't respond to me as, as male. Um, so there's just things that you can't possibly anticipate until you've experienced it. And so little, little examples, like I was just walking down a sidewalk one day in, uh, in the gay village and minding my own business, I was just kind of window shopping and a guy in front of me spun around and you know called me a faggot and I thought he was gonna punch my teeth out because I guess I was walking too close behind him. And, and that's, just, that's not something that I would have thought much about as female. And as male, I mean, I, I didn't really think much about it either until I had those experiences. So learned very quickly that their social, like your, your um, social space bubble has to be bigger as male. You can't, you can't get as physically close to people um, mm. as you could when you were female is, is one example that I noticed. And, and emotional regulation has to be different. I mean, one is when I've started taking testosterone, I, I don't cry as easily. I mean, I was never a big crier anyway, but I noticed that that's, it's really hard for me to access certain emotions now um, as a result of testosterone. I cry for sentimental things. Like if I'm watching a sentimental movie, I'm like waterworks, but I, I don't cry out of sadness and frustration. 
Um, and so I've had to learn other ways of processing my emotions. And I find that I can't be as, I was never really a big demonstrative of emotional person, but I do find that <clears throat> the range of acceptable emotions to express has narrowed as, because I think women have a freedom to be a little more demonstrative with, um, and emotional than men do without being perceived as, I don't know, angry or overly emotional. Unbalanced. One of those reasons why um, I feel like transition took so so well for me is, first of all, I don't like people in my personal space, so I always <laughs> give, give a lot of space. And then um, uh, uh, I've always been quite, you know, not emotionally expressive. And so, so being, so even, so, but there was a lot of like, um, uh, uh, yeah, the socialization is is entirely different. One thing, Aaron, I'm not sure if you noticed or and didn't expect. I didn't expect it. Is men actually touch each other a lot more than women do? Um, and that's kind of I think something people would think the opposite of. Men very um, so so girls, women who are close friends or whatever might be like you know like touch each other's arm or I don't know in communication. But guys, like there's always like a you know what, when you're greeting, when you're leaving, like there's always like a hand, like a, a like a back pad or a, or a, you know, like a fist bump or a handshake. Like, there's so much touching. I don't know. It made me uncomfortable and I didn't expect um, that kind of being touched so much. Um, and I do not, yeah, don't appreciate that. But one big difference I think is, um, <laughs> is uh, the, um, the world's just harsher to, to men. Um, both men and women, right, are, are less warm and um, uh, you're kind of treated quite delicately um, when, when you're perceived as a woman. I'm not sure if you, you, you must have, like, how, like, when you were a teenager, did you feel like, like when you transitioned and started passing as, as female that the world got softer in response to you, because I found the opposite. It's like once once people were perceiving as me as male, they were much harsher in their um, uh, just just communication styles. And you know, like noticing, like you know, if I would smile at a woman, she would try to get away, you know, like rather than smiling back as you know she would have, you know, uh, uh, if I you know were perceived as as a woman. But did, so yeah, I found like the that both men and women are a lot more, you know. Um, Harsher is the only is the only way I can describe it. But you're afforded much more respect. So there's there's two things. It's like once I started passing as male, I felt like I was given like this kind of like almost deference. Like when I would just start talking about things, and suddenly I was perceived as basically getting much more attention than I would have before. I'm taken much more seriously, and yeah, I guess it just afforded more respect uh, than I was previously. But again, it's the harshness. Um, <clears throat> so there are a lot of people who transition, who, you know, like Aaron was saying, you, t you take testosterone, you start masculinizing. And so a lot of these uh, young women who want to transition because they want to be trans, they don't want to be men. And then, so on mm. top of looking like, looking like a man, the world is treating them much more harshly when really they just wanted to be like, you know, ha have the cool rainbow point. Um, Ooh, soft boy. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But did you find that like so? So you never lived the world as as an adult man, but you were obviously you know a teenage boy, and did things get? Uh, how how did the world the external perception of you change? Transitioning for me initially felt really good because 
I was able to go from being really introverted to developing friendships and relationships with people, which I struggled with so badly growing up. And it's sort of funny because in retrospect, one of the things that I could say is that as I became more mature and as I learned how to ameliorate my social awkwardness, that those two things could have been what allowed me to form relationships more easily. But it was uh, a, a lot more highly correlated with my transition. And so for a long time, I assumed that that was uh, unlocking the real me, <laughs> which there's plenty of reason to, to doubt that that was actually what happened. But I, I think that it's pretty common for trans people, though, to talk about how they were socially repressed before transition and then afterwards that they felt like they had an easier time to connect. And I guess from a gender critical perspective, one of the conclusions that you might draw is that in order to portray your, your gender role correctly in the way that our society is shaped right now, that there's some unnaturalness to it for some people and that the unnaturalness of it is, is so severe that unfortunately transition seems to be something that allows it to be expressible mm -hmm. because I don't know how to put this. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not Blair White. Let's, let's, let's just say that. I'm not uh, trying to put myself out there as a, as a Barbie model at all. And I would never want to. Um, and when I was a boy, I was not particularly sw a swishy boy. I was just um, quieter and more cerebral and more introverted and i'd much 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 rather have a conversation with an adult because adults were able to think about things more carefully and i i just uh had no ability to develop new friendships as a, a boy and at the same time that I was probably figuring out how to express myself and, and reach out to people and be a little bit more vulnerable and trusting and, and get those relationships uh, started, I was doing my transition. So it's, it's just all conflated now. Yeah, these days transition seems to be so much about you know kind of picturing in your mind this whole like persona that you that you curate and cultivate and then and then you transition transition into um you know this brand new self and a brand new identity and, and i wouldn't say that my transition i ever I, I experienced it quite like that i'm it in some ways i just felt like what this does is it re, it sort of removes a social barrier like i can just be myself in a way that doesn't seem to ruffle other people's feathers. You know, whereas as a butch lesbian, it sort of the equivalent of like the, the discomfort or confusion people feel when there's a trans man who's pregnant and that, that that 
causes you know that incongruence um causes people sort of this this discomfort as a bush lesbian i felt like i was always doing that that i was always causing people discomfort in some way which then fed into a lot of social anxiety for me which probably made me more socially awkward which so it was just sort of this vicious cycle and i felt like transitioning was just a way of being myself without causing that that discomfort in other people and I mean and I don't think I'm not trying to build a case for transition but that's just that's yeah. just the, I think that's the purpose that it that it served and I don't think it's a very it places a big heavy medical and psychological burden on us in order to soothe other people's anxiety with about gender nonconformity yeah this is really rough because I think each of us would tell people, uh, be very, very, very slow about transitioning, get, make sure that you have as much information as possible, um, question your own competency, might even be a piece of advice. And then nevertheless, we're sitting here talking about some of the positive things that we experienced, not necessarily because we transitioned, but because we are navigating the world in a way where people's expectations are starting from a different set of values than they would have been if we were just gender non-conforming, uh, appearing as gender non-conforming individuals of our native sex. Oh. Fuck you, cis people. You did this to us. <laughs> that's, that's, is that the answer? <laughs> I don't think that's the answer, but maybe that's the answer. I have found uh, that it's um, there seems to be one one thing like when I first started encountering like the gender critical perspective and I um, you know really adapted it um, adopted it excuse me um, and then you know reading well no first hand it was reading all the detransitioner experiences and me trying to figure out like what is different between my experience because so much of the gender dysphoria was the same, like they had the same experience as I did, and then they transitioned, and for whatever reason, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't a benefit to them. And one thing I'm realizing with a lot of the detransitioner stories is they were very much trying to flee themselves, like they wanted to be somebody else entirely. And 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 then now that they've detransitioned, they're like embracing their their who they are, like they're like they're. Um, learning to accept themselves and, and actually love themselves for who they are. Whereas before they were trying to be somebody else entirely because they basically hated who they were. And, and that's something that I, I've never related to. I felt like I've always been quite like, fond, I don't know, it's weird to say, but like fond of myself. Like I like the person I am. I always have. And except when I was a teenager who likes themselves when they're a teenager, but I, but I've always been kind of like proud, I guess, of who I am, except I had this, very you know intense experience of gender dysphoria where I felt that that I would just feel much more comfortable if people saw me the way I saw myself which was male and and so you know I transitioned and it basically achieved that I feel a lot differently about the whole thing now obviously but I feel like that's one of those things why it and again I not to not to not to you know speak so positively about transition but it's um 
yeah, I feel like if, if, you're, if you go into it kind of knowing like this is, I'm still the exact same person. I will always be the same person. I'm just going to cosmetically look different. People are going to, the world is going to interact with me differently. And, you know, and, and if those things you're signing up for, then, <clears throat> sorry, we went full circle here to that, <laughs> that uh, how, who can consent to this. Um, but I think that has a lot to do with it is, is knowing you will always be the exact same person. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just how you look and who, how people interact with you. That's going to, going to change. Somebody, a number of people over, over the years have messaged me and said as, as though they're, uh, I, I don't know. They've messaged me the, the old saying, uh, wherever you go, there you are. So transition doesn't give you a, an outlet. You're, you're still you. And if you're trying to get away from you, then transition isn't going to get you away from yourself. It's going to give you a whole new bag of that's right. issues. So that's why you need disassociative drugs. When you guys were, were kids, were you able to imagine yourself as adults? Were you able to imagine a future for yourself? No. No. There were I'll... no men who were modeling anything that I could see as a, a, a man that I would want to become. I always just felt so completely foreign to the women, like the adult women in my life, like my mom, her friends, my, my aunts. It was like, I just, there was, I did not relate to them at all. I related much more to the male figures in my life. Um, and so I just, the, the concept of growing up to be a woman just absolutely made no sense to me. I couldn't envision it. And then even when I was, you know, in my mid and I had transitioned when I was 27, um, but it was still, it still seemed like such a foreign idea. You know, it seemed like this is not like, I'm not. Yeah. Anyway, I just never was able to relate with womanhood, no matter how old I got. Um, I don't know. Maybe I would have eventually outgrown it, but you know, <laughs> didn't at 27. So. I guess where the idea of gender, gender identity comes from is like, I couldn't imagine myself as an adult as like growing up female, I, I imagined I would grow up to be a man. And so I had a very active imagination and an imaginary life and, and um, where I imagined myself as an adult man and this is what my life is gonna look like. And, and then, you know, when you hit your teenage years and your body starts changing, it's like, oh shit, I'm not gonna, like I, I've invested so many years of my life in that, in that, gender identity to use that word in its correct sense it, you know building up that internal sense of self that was so mismatched from reality that as a teenager it was a real crisis moment i don't even I, remember what i how i envisioned the future other than i just yeah I, I couldn't um yeah just just couldn't see myself being an adult an adult woman um but i don't know if i like kind of i didn't i didn't plan to be an adult man though you know i wasn't i wasn't thinking like that um, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I got to point something out here because I think it's important that we acknowledge it. We are, I think all of us are to some degree gender critical, no matter what word we use, that's, that's sort of where we are. Uh, 
And we're sitting here going, oh my gosh, when I was a kid, I couldn't imagine growing up to be an adult of, of the, the sex that I am. And when I transitioned, I, I, the awkwardness kind of disappeared. And somebody listening to this would be very right to say, you are not being consistent in what you're talking about. So I, I feel like we ought to confront that. Do you, do you, first of all, do you think I'm right? And second of all, uh, should, should we confront that? Not being consistent in what way? And consistent like... because we would say, oh, well, um, you should slow down. You should try to inhabit your body is something that I say. Uh, you should try to become more comfortable being in the world as the sex that you are before you try to transition. And um, transition doesn't really solve anything. And it brings with it a bunch of medical problems besides. And... I wish looking back, maybe I had th thought about my options differently. And then, uh, so that was like the first part of our conversation. Then we're like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I can't imagine growing up and, and becoming a, a, a woman or becoming a man. And uh, it was just like, I, I felt so awkward and out of place in, in the, the sex that I was. And when I transitioned, I was becoming who I, who, uh, I felt more comfortable being. Um, these these are in tension with each other. Yeah. I don't I don't know the thing. Okay, so so I've had this conversation with a detransitioner who who basically said to me, you know, you know you're not a man, and you know that you know gender you don't you know, you know the gender ideology is all nonsense. You know this is physically bad for you. Why do you why don't you detransition? And obviously, it's a very that's a very valid that's a very good question. But it's like be, because because it worked because i feel this is the easy way out you know like i could i could i could confront my gender dysphoria you know detransition confront my gender dysphoria in a more um you know in a more cognitive way perhaps um uh but the truth is is that this this is really easy and it you know it 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 relieved the dysphoria it continues to relieve the, you know it's like i feel comfortable um i know long term this was probably a bad decision but you know it it's it's done the trick um but i don't so one thing one of my favorite reviews i've read of somebody uh, for transparency uh somebody who's like basically uh anti-trans people listen to it it's not what you think and then uh, pro-trans people listen to it it's not what you think you know so that's what that's what we're doing here is like we can we can talk about how nonsensical it is to you know try to change your sex or to think you can change sex or to to buy into the genderology um of it all but but the whole point of this is to be completely honest and transparent and that is that for me transition worked so i'm more concerned about the gender ideology and the impact of that and the harm that it's doing than I am the concept of people have gender dysphoria and sometimes seek treatment for it. Um, but just going back to a couple of points, so so the the world being uncomfortable with gender nonconformity, I mean, that's very contextual. And we live in the world, we have certain experiences, and we do our best to respond to those experiences. And so I don't make apologies for my choice at the time given my circumstances but that doesn't mean that i don't want the circumstances to change you know i i would love for our world to be more accepting and understanding of gender nonconformity, so that that no law is no longer a motive for some people um but i'm also a realist and i you know the world 
is what it is. And um, I couldn't as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or even a 20-year-old just, you know, snap my fingers and change that. But that doesn't mean that I don't want something better. Like it doesn't mean that I think that medicalizing all gender non-conforming people is the solution to other people's discomfort with gender nonconformity. How do you make sense of it? Oh gosh. Um, I think sometimes it's okay to acknowledge that you have some dissonance about your beliefs. And I think this is one of those cases where it's just something that I'm still processing. I, I, I don't have an answer. Um, I, I really do believe that if I had at a younger point in my life had somebody who understood what I was going through and had really understood where, where I was likely to end up and had worked with me, that I would have been able to find some way forward that did not involve transition. But I did not have that. Mm -hmm. And I am far past the point where that would be a, a practical thing for me to have. So this is why when people ask if I'm if I regret transitioning, I say that I'm ambivalent because the, the thing that might have helped me wasn't there. And without transitioning, I don't know where I would have ended up, but it might have been in a lot worse spot. Might have been a better spot, I, I don't know, but it's easy for me to imagine scenarios where the lack of feeling like I had a place anywhere would have gotten me to the point where I felt so isolated that I, I might have just uh, turned myself completely inside out and disappeared. I agree with that. I, I would say, you know, um, early intervention, I think, is, is key to be able to recognize and support kids. Like, I had no idea as a, as a little kid. I mean, I, I would say that I had gender dysphoria from about age three on. As Like, as soon as I understood that, that there were differences between male category and female category, I automatically put myself in the male category. And I had no idea why that was very confusing. And I knew that I knew I was making a mistake, but I had no framework for understanding why am I making that mistake? Why am I doing that? And I, it seemed like a dirty secret. And that's why I went internal rather than being able to talk to somebody. I didn't tell anyone about it. Nobody had any idea. They saw that I was gender nonconforming that part was was clear to people, but they had no idea what my internal struggle was. Um, and I think it would have been really helpful to have someone who understood it to come into that space and, and teach me what it was about and help me make sense of it because I've spent so many years internalizing it and developing that internal sense of self, that gender identity, right? That internal sort of sense of self as male when you have that and you've developed that and it's it's very firmly entrenched for many 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 years i think as a clinician i'm thinking could that do harm like if someone's had that that stable sense of self for 40 years could it what harm could it do to try to now break that down and unravel that and and replace it with something else so in terms of ethics i kind of think what does the least harm at some point, but whereas if I, if someone had intervened when I was five, and, and then I wouldn't have maybe developed that because I I developed a sense of self largely out of misinformation and not understanding my experience. 
so ethically, you know, as a as a fifty year old, like it it might do it would do it would do my life and my, myself a lot of harm at this point to even consider detransition when I've built an entire life. It would you know it, it would impact my family, it would impact my kids, it would impact everything in my life too. It would be a whole nother transition at this point to undo any of this, and I think it would do me psychological harm to do that. For sure. Well. Until you decide to finally pull the trigger, though, Aaron, and, and detransition, I'm not going to let you be part of the gender critical movement. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously, we're we're, we're considered, um, you know, wanting to cause harm, wanting to do violence to the trans community by trans activists, and then the the, the, the radical <laughs> feminist contingent say that we're uh, we're endorsing the trans lifestyle by even you know talking about this stuff. Um, so, <laughs> uh, can't, can't win. I, I honestly think that, that yeah, this is the, 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 the honesty is all that matters is, but yeah, I think it's going to do, going to do good. Um, uh, but tell us about your podcast. You do, a, you obviously, um, are one half of the heterodorks podcast. Yes. How did that come about? The, the, the turf and tranny Alliance. Oh gosh. Well, so I met. Well, that's Nina, a different thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I met Nina back in 2019 at a, a feminist get together that I was crashing so that I could use the toilets there, and <laughs> uh, she and I got along pretty well, and we did a an in person talk together because uh, she was being um, treated horribly by some of the people in her community, and we thought if we gave a talk at the library and talked about some of these issues, maybe people would be able to develop a little bit. Uh, better insight about what we believed. And um, mostly it was just people who already understood where we're coming from who showed up and then uh, the, the rest of the people who like to be angry. So over the course of the pandemic, uh, Nina and I would have virtual dinner together from time to time because uh, people were locked down and it was a little lonely. And we had profound conversations and they've, they've, they're, they're terrible now on, on heterodorks. So they're just a pale, uh, pale reflection of what they used to be but but there's they're still okay but yeah it used to be like it was the meeting of the the great minds uh, when we didn't have an audience but you'll just have to believe me um <laughs> so nina and i both use humor as a coping mechanism and as a way of attacking problems or or ideas uh because you know you, you have to use some techniques so humor is uh, as as good a tool as any and we use that to tackle some really complex topics on our show. So today we uh, just spoke with the uh, person who started the voluntary human extinction movement. Excuse and me? There, there's something called the voluntary human extinction movement. So like so antinatalist to an extreme? Uh, not necessarily because it's it's voluntary it's voluntary so uh, the extreme version would be um cutting the balls off of a 16 year old just because he likes to wear a dress uh <laughs> so so not as extreme but but uh we find that we like having these really nuanced conversations right after i say that we cut off the balls off of a 16 year old boy and uh these conversations then with our guests really are from an unusual perspective because there's not a lot of uh, people who have Nina's background or my background approaching some of these issues. So it turns out that sometimes we have some 
interesting and bizarre conversations, which usually involve coming back around to chopping off the balls of a 16-year-old boy. They're good conversations. They're very, uh, yeah, they're very funny. And then also you do tackle some very interesting, um, yeah, issues. I recommend if you're 16 that you not have orchiectomy. I just want to put that in the footnote. <laughs> Disclaimer. Disclaimer. Wait until wait until you're 18 and competent. <laughs> Fully mature to make that decision. Yes, yes. Or, tw or 25, depending on your jurisdiction. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Karina. It's a pleasure being here. It's been, been a pleasure. It's always a fun time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.